Open your Bible with me to Leviticus chapter 9. This has been our text throughout this series um, in, in many ways. Uh, we keep coming back to it because this text, these verses in Leviticus chapter 9, give us the beginning of the priestly ministry in the tabernacle. And it lays out for us the sacrifices, the order. And we talked about how our worship today has been patterned after. This is the worship we see in the New Testament. Also the worship we see in the Old Testament. So there's a reason why God gave us the patterns he did in the old, and then we see them also in the new. Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, And it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, as a burnt offering. Also a bull and a ram as peace, as peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to point out there in verse 4, specifically, the peace offering. The Lord told his people to bring not just a sin offering, not just a burn offering, but a peace offering. And it is the peace offering that brings us to where we are today in our study on of worship in spirit and in truth. And we're looking at the five steps of our worship that we involve ourselves in each week. Our call, our confession, our consecration. Today we're going to look at our communion with God, and then there's our commission. The peace offering is what we will focus on today. These verses that I just read to you record the inauguration of the priesthood. The call to worship is issued. Moses called Aaron and his sons. The call to worship is issued, and then we see the order in which these sacrifices were to be offered to the Lord in the tabernacle liturgy, or the tabernacle form or pattern of worship. And it, it was constant. So that, that pattern, that order of sacrifice never changed. So the purification offering represents our cleansing. That's our sin offering or what's called here in the New King James the, the sin offering. This is the part of our service which is the confession and absolution of sins. When we kneel down and we confess our sins to God and then we rise receiving the assurance of pardon. The next offering was the ascension or here in the New King James it's called the burnt offering 
because it was completely burned up. But that word, remember, is a Hebrew word that means to ascend. It's why it's called the ascension offering. So the ascension offering represents our consecration. It represents our ascension to the Lord as we are consumed as living sacrifices we are ascended to his presence in which we will then eat with him have a meal with him that's the peace offering the peace offering represents our communion and our communal meal with God so the peace offering wasn't all burned up like the burnt offering or the ascension offering was a portion of that was saved and the priest had a meal. And the, so there were certain offerings that were completely consumed and certain ones that were not completely consumed and there was a meal involved with those sacrifices and the peace offering is one of those. And it's why it occupies the place of our communion. It's why we come to the table and eat every week. So our focus today will be on the peace offering, which represents our communion with God. In Christian worship, our communion with God takes place around his table where he nourishes us with bread and wine. We will consider this climactic part and that's exactly what it is. It is the climactic part of our worship liturgy. In our covenant renewal worship, communion is the goal of our gathering together for the Lord's day worship. The end or the goal of God's covenant is always a feast. You can go through and you can look at all the covenants throughout the scripture. You can look at where God interacts with his people. When he makes a covenant, there's always a meal. So worship, I want to talk to you first about worship. It's what we're doing today. And the, the word worship, as we think of it in our American sensibilities, is, comes really from more of an English or um, modern understanding. Uh, we think of worship as giving worth to God and and. And, and yes, God is worthy of us giving worth. He doesn't need us to give him worth. He doesn't gain worth because we give it to him. He is worthy because he is God. But you understand our connotation of worship involves our giving worth to God, our offering up our praise to him. In the Hebrew, the word worship is, is different. It's not just about people coming together and offering up, uh, telling God how worthy he is of their worship. In Hebrew, the word for worship is, is really an action word. It means literally to fall down on your knees or on your face before God, to bow down before him. Now, when I was in Ethiopia, I experienced the definition of true biblical worship firsthand. Uh, I'll be honest with you, it caught me a little off guard. So during one of the services we participated in, the entire congregation began to literally fall down on their faces before the Lord in worship. Uh, it, this was not like a spontaneous thing. Uh, it was a purposeful act of worship. 
they literally bowed their faces to the ground, actually touching their foreheads to the ground. Then they would be lifted up with outstretched arms to heaven, and then they would immediately fall back down, putting their faces on the ground. They did this repeatedly in worship to God. It was strenuous, it was uncomfortable, and it was strange to me, but it was not strange to them at all. There seems to be, when I, I, I know, I, I, I was paying very close attention because this was an unusual phenomenon. We typically don't do this in our church services here in America. Yes, we do kneel, but let's admit it, Christ Fellowship Church, when we started kneeling here, it, it was a little weird, wasn't it? Because we'd never done that before. But, but you understand this is a normal part of worshiping God. It's just that we never experienced that normal part because it wasn't our tradition. It wasn't our liturgy. But when we go back to the Bible and we look at the liturgy in the Bible, falling down, bowing down on your face before the Lord was a very common thing. That's what it meant to worship God. And so for these Ethiopians that I was observing, I was participating, but I was also very fascinated by, by everything that was happening there seemed to be no worries about getting their nice clothes soil on the extremely dirty floor of the building we were in. There was no prideful ego to tell them that acting that way in church was too radical. Just the opposite was obviously a very natural part of worship for them. And that is what the word worship means after all, to bow down or prostrate oneself before the Lord. The, the Ethiopians I worshipped with did just that, and it was as natural for them as it is for us not to bow down with our faces on the ground before the Lord. Isn't that funny how that works? Worship literally means to fall down or to bow down before the Lord. Most modern Protestant churches do not worship God by falling down on their knees or their faces. If we fall down on our knees and our faces before the Lord, that means that, allow, that we must allow ourselves to also be lifted up. And that was one thing that was very striking to me. As the Ethiopians fell prostrate before the Lord, they didn't stay there. They got up and they reached to heaven, but then they went back down. And it was literally a picture of falling down and being lifted up by the Lord. And as I began to, to study for this sermon series, I, it struck me as I'm reading about this and I'm studying about this, that, that, and I thought, that's exactly what the Ethiopians were doing when I was in worship with them. They're in Africa. And it was very natural to them because they, they understand what worship actually is. Now, I'm not saying that we have to start falling down and standing up and falling down. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, though, that we do need to understand what worship actually is and what it really means. And whether we physically bow down or prostrate ourselves on the ground, there needs to be an attitude of our heart at least, at least an attitude of our heart that is bowed and prostrate before the Lord. 
If you feel moved to bow down and put your face on the ground, go ahead and do that. That's okay. In the midst of our worship. So it's not just falling down or bowing down. It's also being lifted back up by the Lord. Falling down before the Lord puts us in a position to be served by God. Remember, remember what we talked about. You are here to be served by God before you are here to serve God. First and foremost, God serves us during the Lord's day worship. So God lifts us up. We fall down in worship, but he lifts us up to do what? To dine at his table. So God calls us to worship. And in worship, we bow down each week, and God lifts us up that he might serve us. We ascend to God's presence to eat with him. As Jeffrey Meyer puts it in his book, The Lord's Service, we come to church on Sunday to eat with Jesus and one another to feast in his presence. So ask yourself, do you come to church each week in order to feast with God and one another at a communion table? I believe it's fair to say that very many Christians do not think about coming to church for that reason. Many of our American Protestant churches today do not even practice weekly communion. This church, for many years, did not practice weekly communion. We, we practice communion maybe twice a year. Special occasions, because it was a very special thing, and we wanted it to remain very special. We could consider the excuses much of the church uses, but suffice it to say that all any of it is, is an excuse. God calls us to worship, and the goal of our covenant renewal worship is feasting at his table. That brings us back to what our communion with God is, the climactic part of our worship each week. If we did not come to the Lord's table each week, it would be like being absorbed in an amazing book or movie, but never getting to experience the climax of the story, the climax that the story's building to. It would leave you empty. It's like me, you know, I told you I was a news junkie. So, you know, I'm driving down the car and it happens all the time. Any of you people that have serious radio, you know there's a spot in Round Rock. There's two different places in Round Rock where you can't acquire a signal. You're just driving down the road and boom, your radio just goes blank. And I can't tell you how many news stories I've been listening to and boom, it's gone. And I never, I never get to hear the rest of the story because whatever's blocking the signal is blocking the signal and it's just gone. Well, that, that's, that's what it's like worshiping and never coming to the table. You never get to the climactic part of what this whole thing is about. Too many Christians are left empty and malnourished each week and they don't even realize it. 
because they're not brought to the Lord's table to feast in his presence and be nourished with bread and wine, the bread and wine of his body and of his blood. Many Christians have no good answer for why they attend church each week. Many professing Christians do not attend church each week. That number is growing. The fact that the communion meal no longer figures prominently in American evangelical worship, I believe, is a major reason for these sad realities. We come together as the church for the Lord's Supper. Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for the disorders that existed when they came together to eat at the Lord's table. And Paul reminded them why they come together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. Paul writes, Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's supper? And the answer to that rhetorical question is, yes, it is to eat the Lord's supper. That's why we come together in one place. Paul makes it clear they came together in one place to eat the Lord's Supper. Why do we think that it's no longer our reason for coming together? Coming together to eat the Lord's Supper is a necessary part of our weekly worship on the Lord's Day. So God invites us to his house for a meal. Think about that for a moment. God invites us to his house for a meal. Perhaps you have noticed much of what we do involves food. I mean, this I'm talking just in terms of our humanness. Much of what we do involves food. I mean, when you have a party, when do you have a party and you don't have food? When do you have a feast and you don't have food? I mean, the very nature, the very word feast means food, means eating, right? When do you have a special occasion and you don't have some sort of food or refreshment there? I mean, so much of what we do involves food. We congregate and meet over food for nourishment, but also for social reasons. Have you ever wondered why we often choose a restaurant or coffee shop for a planned meeting with some person or some group? I mean, I do this all the time. Uh, I meet with people typically in a restaurant or, you know, I had a guy contact me this week. I've never met. He wants to meet me and talk about some things. And so we're going to meet at a restaurant and we're going to sit down together at a table and we're going to more than likely break bread together. We're going to at least eat chips and salsa together, if nothing else. Relationships are formed and cultivated around meals. Many of our elaborate social rituals involve food and take place around a table. Think about that. Common meals are transformed by these elaborate social rituals that facilitate fellowship with one another. We live to eat, and eating structures our common life. I've heard this asked more than once by someone very near and dear to me. Why does everything always have to involve food? The answer, in short, is because that's how God has made us. This is why the covenant renewal service must never end without communion. God has called his church together to eat with him. On the Lord's day, God calls us. He invites us to his house for a meal. 
Now, if you really believe that, tell me how many invitations to eat at God's house would you ignore? We could think of all kinds of people not even remotely as important as God who would invite us to their house for a meal and we wouldn't miss it for anything. But yet God invites us every week and look at how many of his children do not come to his house to eat with Jesus. Listen to the words of Jeffrey Meyer. Yes, he cleanses and consecrates us, but before God sends us out to serve him in this world, he sits us down for a common meal. He must strengthen and nourish us with bread and wine for service in his kingdom. We must experience the shalom of God at his table. Therefore, the culmination of our covenant renewal service occurs when we sit down and eat dinner with Jesus, receiving from him by faith his own life-giving flesh and blood, close quote. Wow, that is amazing. This is why the Lord's Supper is a normal part of our weekly Lord's Day worship. It's not just a tradition or a part of the liturgy we just wanted to add in. It's because this is, this is the way worship has been constructed and ordained and patterned by God, not, not just in the New Testament, not beginning with the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples, but go all the way back to every covenant God has made with his people. Go all the way back to the tabernacle and the temple, and you see that God consummates worship with a meal involving him and his people. Oops, I'm sorry. I just hit the wrong button on my computer. Give me just a moment. The devil wants to tempt you to believe that God is too far from you, or you're too far from him, that your life circumstances or your sin is too much for him, and you are beyond his mercy and beyond his grace. And, and it's not even the devil that has to put those thoughts in our head. Our own selves, our own unrenewed minds are most often our worst enemy. Yet God invites each and every one of us to eat with him each week, to know his peace, to dispel that lie that we are not worthy, because the truth is we are not worthy, but he is. We are the most unlikely guest at God's table, but yet here we are, by his grace. So he invites us each week to know his peace, to dispel the lie, and to nourish and strengthen our relationship in him. Don't reject the invitation. Accept it each week 
And in doing so, you will be transformed each and every time you come to the table to dine with the Lord of glory. How can you not be? The significance of the Lord's Supper. This is, I think, where many Christians, because we don't, we don't consider, we don't understand, we don't even begin to grasp the full weight of the significance of the Lord's Supper. John Calvin warned of the devil's work to turn the Lord's Supper into falsehood and vanity. Protestant churches have been known to spend time pointing out the falsehood concerning the Lord's Supper when it comes to the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Whew, that's a big word. That simply stands for a doctrine that means during the Mass, the bread and the wine literally become in substance the body, the flesh, and the blood of Jesus. We reject that. We believe that's a false doctrine. We don't believe that's what happens to the bread and the wine that's sitting on our table right here. Protestants reject this doctrine as false, but many of those churches do so while not coming to the Lord's table for weekly communion. One of the excuses you often hear from churches that do not practice weekly communion is that it will become an empty ritual, void of all real meaning. That implies that infrequent communion keeps it more meaningful. This is what Calvin warned against when he warned against vanity. The kind of vanity Calvin warned against was not a vanity from too frequently coming to the Lord's table, but the exact kind of vanity from coming too infrequently. The words of Christ, as often as you do this, do, recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, those words of Christ are often used as justification for infrequent dining with the Lord at his table. The justification is that Jesus did not specify frequency. Those same words can be and should be used to justify and confirm what we know the early church did. They frequently and regularly came to the Lord's table. In fact, at minimum, they would come each week to the Lord's table to dine with him and with one another. When something is vain, it is useless, empty, or without effect. If we believe the Lord's Supper is not, is not useless, if we believe the Lord's Supper is not empty, and that it is not without effect, why would we want to why would we want to do it more infrequently? Man, this is really powerful. This is really effectual. This is really filled with purpose and meaning. We should do it less. But yet, I would submit to you, if you ask any pastor, any Christian, if they believe that coming to the Lord's table was, was useful, meaningful, and powerful, they would say, yes, of course it is. And then make an excuse as to why they don't do it weekly. Doesn't make sense. We would not do it less 
frequently if we believe that. And it's why we come weekly because we do believe those things about the Lord's Supper. And so we want to come as frequently as possible. If we believe the Supper is not vain, but powerfully useful, full and effectual, we should come each time the Lord invites us. Do, not, do, do you believe that hugging your children or showing affection to your spouse or sitting down together at the family table will become useless, empty, and without effect if we do it too much? Of course you don't. In fact, we know that negative issues develop from too infrequently doing those necessary things for and with one another. If we follow this logic, it, it just doesn't make sense. It's not logic, is it? It's illogic. The more we hug our children, the more we express affection, the more we spend time with one another at the table, the more useful, the more full, and the more effectual our lives and our relationships become. The plague of fatherlessness in our nation has not contributed to stronger men, has it? What we need is less fatherhood so that it remains really special, so that when that young man occasionally gets to have a hug from his dad, it's going to be really special for him and he'll never forget it. No. So do you see that God invites us to his house each week to dine with us each week because he wants our lives to be transformed in a meaningful and powerful way. Transformed into what? Into the very image of Jesus. We don't, we don't experience that transformation by being with Jesus less. We experience that transformation by being with him more. And you say, well, yeah, I know, Pastor Jeff, but you know, I'm out there at the lake every Sunday, and I am with Jesus. Yeah, but you're not with Jesus where Jesus commands you to be with him. Because there's nothing about our worship that we're talking about on the Lord's Day worship and the communal meal together that you can do by yourself. It was designed, it was created, it was ordained to be done together with the body. And the effects can only be achieved together with the body. So the more, the more time we spend with one another and with God at his table... The more useful, the more full, the more effectual our lives become and our relationship with Him become. Many of the negative issues we see in the church today can be linked to the type of falsehood and vanity that Calvin warned against, not only in the Lord's Supper, but in worship in general. It may be that the Lord's table is a place too much 
of the church too infrequently attends because it does not understand the significance of it in the first place. I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt, but the reason we're talking about this here at Christ Fellowship is so that you don't just accept what we do each week in the Lord's Day service. It's so that you will understand why we do what we do each week in the Lord's Day service. And your understanding of that and your knowledge of the truth concerning that, you can go out and you can help others come to a knowledge of the truth and and help them understand the significance of what they are missing when they are not coming and responding to the invitation to come to the Lord's house and have dinner with Him each week. Perhaps that is the problem. We don't know the significance. So let's make sure that we understand why communion is the climactic part of our weekly worship. The significance of remembering. So concerning the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me or do this in my remembrance. Luke twenty two nineteen, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 25. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. I'm going to read those very scriptures to you later on when we actually come to the Lord's table. I read them to you every week when we partake of the bread and the wine together. These are familiar scriptures with a familiar understanding. The understanding is that when we come to the Lord's table, we are to remember Jesus, we are to be mindful of Him. That's how we typically think about the words of Christ in these verses. This is not wrong, but there may be another way, even more important, a more important way we should understand what Jesus is saying here. No doubt we must be mindful of Christ and remember him and his sacrifice for us and giving up his body and pouring out his blood on the cross, but there's more here. When we come to the Lord's table, it's not just us remembering. More importantly, listen church, more importantly, God also remembers. Our remembering is significant. But God remembering his covenant with us holds a much greater significance than our remembering. In case it sounds strange that God would need to be reminded of his covenant with us as if he might forget, don't fear. The only thing that God forgets is our sin. And that's good news.
It is significant for us that God remembers. So here are some significant examples of God remembering. Let's go back to the post-flood world. In fact, let's go back to immediately after the flood when Noah comes off the ark after being on it for a year. And he walks on to a new creation. And he has the memory of the old one that God just utterly destroyed with the flood. You might, you might be thinking, and it might not be wrong to think that, that, that Noah could have some post-flood stress disorder. But listen to the words of Genesis chapter, 12, verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 12 through 16. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow or my bow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow or the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The bow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. The rainbow we see in the rain cloud is not there so that we remember, but so that God remembers. It is a memorial sign for Him. This is communicated to us in language and symbolism we can understand, and it gives us assurance that God is not going to destroy the earth again by flood. But the sign is not for us. The sign is for God. Numbers 10.10. Also in the day of your gladness and your appointed feast and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. That's the communion meal. And they shall be a memorial for you Before your God, I am the Lord your God. The peace offering is a memorial, God says. God sees the peace offering and he remembers his covenant. God will be mindful of you. He will not forget. But he will remember you. These things shall be a memorial for you before your God. Then in Acts chapter 10, verse 4, when he observed him, this is Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. The angel appeared to Cornelius and assured him that his prayers and alms had come up for a memorial before God. They caused God to remember or to be mindful of Cornelius. In these examples, God is remembering. God is mindful. 
God is being reminded of his covenant. The meal of the peace offering is a memorial to call God to remembrance of the word of his covenant. When we come to the Lord's table and eat the bread and drink the wine, proclaiming the body and the blood of Christ, we bring the new covenant before the face of God. The Lord's table is a memorial for God. The point of this table is not first that we remember. It is first that God remembers. Just as our coming here to the Lord's service is not first our serving God, it's God serving us. It's first God serving us. It's first God remembering his covenant on our behalf. That should lend new and greater significance to the Lord's Supper for us and help us understand why it is vitally important for us to respond to God's invitation each week to come to his house and dine with Jesus. Our coming to the Lord's table and eating with him is a reminder to God of his covenant with his people. Yes, we remember Christ. We remember the covenant. But our joyful obedience is reminding God of his covenant with us. And that is truly significant. So there's one thing that may be easily overlooked when we talk about coming to the Lord's table. So remember, this is the peace offering. This is the sacrifice called the peace offering. So when we come to the table, we come knowing that we have peace with God as we sit at the table with him. And one thing that may be easily overlooked is our posture when we come to the Lord's table. There is a reason for our posture in the Lord's Supper. I have myself personally, in the past, participated many times in the Lord's Supper and assumed a posture of kneeling in humble repentance as I examined myself, preparing myself to eat the bread and drink the cup, thinking I was assuming the correct posture. But the reality is that is the wrong posture when we come to the Lord's table. This is a Thanksgiving meal. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. This literally is a Thanksgiving meal. It's a Thanksgiving meal at a common table with God and with one another coming together to share a joyful meal in peace. Imagine spending all your meal time, imagine being at your dining room table at a Thanksgiving feast and you spending all of your meal time knelt at your dining room chair deep in reflection and self-examination, judging yourself, examining yourself with your eyes closed consumed in your own little world, trying to get yourself ready to eat the meal before you. It would be inappropriate, right? Because everyone else at the table would be going, what's wrong with him? Well, the, what's wrong with him is he's assumed the wrong posture because he doesn't rightly discern where he is and what he's participating in. Contrary to the belief of some Christians, our fellowship meal of peace is not a sad, somber, introspective occasion. And I'm preaching to myself here. 
Because it's very easy to fall into this. When we think about the magnitude of the things that we're talking about, preaching about, teaching about, praying about. But we need to remember, that's not what this is about. This is a fellowship meal of peace. It's not a sad, somber, introspective occasion where we turn inward, close our eyes, and focus on ourselves. This is not the time in the worship service where we have our quiet time with God. We are not individually dining with God. We are seated together at a common table, sharing a meal with Him and with one another. There is room for quiet reflection, just as there is at any mealtime. But this is a celebration, a joyous occasion we are sharing with God and with one another. When Paul admonishes the Corinthian believers to discern the body, he's not talking about the bread they were eating. He's talking about the bread that they are. When we're admonished to discern the body, it's not the little piece of bread we're holding that we're supposed to to, to focus on, to meditate on. It's the bread sitting all around us. It's the bread we're rubbing elbows with. It's the bread that is our brother and our sister. It's the bread we are because we are the body of Christ. You eat bread and you are bread. You become bread. You are Christ's body. The time for personal introspection and self-examination and judgment is not when we come to the Lord's table. It's before we come to the Lord's house where his table is. We should prepare ourselves before we come to his house to eat with him. That'd be like saying, you know, God's invited me to his house for dinner and I'm going to go to God's house. I'm going to take a shower and put on clean clothes at his house to get ready for dinner. No, you do that at your house, and you go ready when you get to God's house. At the beginning of the worship service, we have a time of confession and absolution. At this time, we also may examine and judge ourselves so that we are fully prepared to come joyfully to the Lord's Supper, to experience our peace with God and fellowship with Him around His table. You are invited to a meal around the table, and the proper posture to eat a meal is sitting down. We recline, we relax at his table because we are at peace with God and with one another through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is the Lord's sacrifice as well as our own that we celebrate at the very meal we are seated to enjoy in peace. The meal that is the Lord's Supper, just like the peace offering of the tabernacle, memorializes the covenant of peace we have with God. It brings before His face and ours the covenant of life we have with Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, praise God, you are invited to lunch with Jesus. You are invited to the Lord's table. So let us Come, because I trust that you have prepared yourself already to come to his table, to sup with him, and to be changed and transformed by him. Welcome to Jesus. Please stand and receive your charge and your commission. I want you to listen to the words of Peter Lightheart from his book, the Theopolitan Liturgy. And I quote, 
The Eucharist is a memorial of Jesus' death, a reminder to the Father of his self-offering. The Eucharist is a sacrifice of praise, but it's more. It renews our union with Jesus' death and resurrection, a union forged in baptism. As we participate every week in the Eucharist, we pass again and again from death into new life. As we eat and drink Christ's body and Christ's blood, we are conformed to his sacrifice. So our entire life becomes reasonable service. A liturgy of self-offering in which we, like Jesus, are priests of our own self-sacrifice. As we share this sacrificial meal, we're made over into martyrs, willing to shed our life's blood in faithful witness. Close quote. God called you to worship each week, and in your worship, He invites you to dine at His table. You are invited to God's house each week to eat with Jesus. That is the truth. Do not treat his invitation as vain or useless or empty with no effect. Rather, see it for what it is. It is useful, abundantly full, and powerfully effectual for life and life to the fullest. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.